Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 136 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hey there. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Yay. See, isn't that, isn't that nice? Everyone gets their own greeting. Well, that's because I won 2020's uh, Introducing Yourself on the Podcast Award. Yes, award you created for yourself. Yep. Not only an award he created for himself, but notice how he said 2020. That implies that he's he's preparing the start of the 2021 season. This is the bye weeks. What a year, you guys, huh? 2021. We're about six days in. So good so far. Everything's going yeah, great. Everything is normal. Well, since we're in a new year, I... And maybe you guys did this too. I decided to set a goal for myself on Goodreads of the number of books I want to read for the year. And I went ham. I don't know why. I chose 75 books, <gasps> which is more books than I've ever read in my life. Wait, what? How books? many weeks are there so, in a year? 52. And how many books so, did you wait, choose? Bailey. 75. Wait. <laughs> yeah. So, so wait, ba- Bailey, yeah. you know no one for- is forcing you to, to pick a large number, right? Like no one has any control over what number you pick but yourself well bailey really wanted that golden goodreads fiddle and she engaged in an ill-fated competition with the goodreads devil and short, you know long story short now she has to set a goal every year i have uh, okay i don't know if you guys feel this way but it's part maybe it's the user interface it's like okay it's like <laughs> the, cho- the really bad user interface of goodreads well, yeah it's like choose a goal and it comes up and it's just like type a number and i'm like oh <laughs> i could put any number in here Choose a number and then in parentheses, but be chill. (laughs) So, you know, I went ham. I put 75. I don't know why I put 75, because like I said, more than I've ever read. I have a child now. I'm barely sleeping. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I did it. And then five people immediately liked it. And so I can't back down. Just like Tom Petty. (laughs) Yeah. He won't back down even. That's right. He maybe could, but he won't. <laughs> well, Bailey, I, that's very impressive. It is uh, two books more impressive than my goal, um, which I am scared of my goal even. Uh, I think I my goal was like 70 or 72 last year, and I barely made it. And I do like to try and do a little bit more. So it's 73 this year. But I had, I had just pushed... I felt the click, the, the button to, to make my goal, and then I saw 75, and I was like, dang. Do you have friends, though, that are like, their goal is 100, and they've already yeah. burned past it? And you're like, how? I do think how. I think I listen and read a lot of books. I can't see how I could possibly do anymore. I know, it's crazy. Andrew, well, uh, how many books do you want to read this year? Well, you guys are a little ahead of me, about <laughs> 43 and 45 books, respectively. Mm. Um, I put a goal of 30. Realistically, I'm actually shooting for 36. I want to read three a month. You know, what with the one I read for the podcast? And then I like reading along with you guys sometimes. And then, you know, I should also be reading books that aren't demanded to me by the numbers gods that are Dylan. So bow three, before three me. <laughs> So three a month feels reasonable to me, but I am undershooting it a little bit because that's what a goal should be for, something you can actually accomplish that doesn't stress you out. Mm. No, it should be something that's very difficult and that you'd strive really hard and only few people can accomplish. Well, to be fair, it's six more books than I put on last year. So, um, Dylan, how many books do you want to read this year? Uh, three. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a five star for you. That's 15 stars right there, know. baby. <laughs> the thing is, Goodreads is kind of dumb because it asked me how many books I want to read this year and I gave it a really low number. So that will be really impressed when I overshoot it. <laughs> that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's, it's February and Dylan's met his reading goal. I know. He beat it by like 
200%. (laughs) Six books. (laughs) After Christmas, I took down my, our book tree and I realized we had so many books. You put all the books on the curb now and they're all like brown and faded. I did put a lot out out there. Did you notice as you walked in? The, the, the like take a book, leave a book library is being severely abused by the Margaret Wells, I will say. I do it in the night. I put them on the night. People don't know. (laughs) Right now it has my entire DVD collection and like all of the two. Oh no. She's like a reverse raccoon that like places garbage at places. <laughs> I get excited whenever one is taken though. Yeah. And anyway, so uh, I realized we needed we needed a new shelf, so we got a new bookshelf, and it is entirely taken up with Dylan's to read list. So everybody who says Bailey, oh, that's what that is. <laughs> everyone says Bailey, you have so many books. So does Dylan, and two of them are called Spies. Well, yeah, <laughs> Dylan does love spies. Book? Nope, two different books. Two different books called one, Spies. Dylan. How many spies can there be? I've never met a spy. One's fiction and one's nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> spies, but I made them up. Spies, but I didn't make them up, or did I? <laughs> <laughs> By a spy. Uh, Dylan got some shame over Christmas. Toby and Andrew, did you guys get any shame? I did receive some shame. I'm reading one of, I'm reading my shame right now. I'm reading Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell, the new to me David Mitchell book, although I believe it came out like two years ago, something came like that. came out last year. Last, last year. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. Ooh, I got an Ursula K. Le Guin like collection that I really wanted. It's called All the Hainish Novels and Short Stories, and I really wanted it. Um, I've already read a fair amount of those books, but it has like her annotations and notes on all of the uh on all the books i'm really excited to read those cool yes isn't utopia avenue kind of like david mitchell meets daisy jones it's exactly like that yeah 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 i'm, I'm really enjoying it andrew are you ashamed only if you're ashamed of national treasure eric larson uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so i received for christmas um every book that eric larson has ever written from dylan you're welcome um, <laughs> Thank well, you, you, you asked very, him for it. To be fair, you no, were like, "Okay, no, no." Let the record show. Let me just get through this, and okay, then we can fine. quibble with my version of events. Uh, <laughs> I received every copy, uh, a, a copy of every book that Eric Larson had written from Dylan, as well as a few of them from my mother. Because while I did not directly ask Dylan for the Eric Larson books, I said I'd be interested in reading more of them on the podcast, and Dylan very wonderfully and intuitively and empathetically thought, hey, that would be a great gift for Andrew. Separately, I also just asked for them for Christmas for my mom, not knowing Dylan was getting them. So I ended up with like nine copies of different Eric Larson books, donated a few to my mom, who was very excited about them, and then kept a whole set for myself. And then separately from the wonderful Larson, I uh, was, you know, just stopping by a bookstore that I was walking past and noticed that they had signed copy of the new Phil Clay book Missionaries. Mm. Um, so I put in a little order with the thing, picked it up all no contact safely. And so I have that on my shame as well. I'm just realizing now that I have to report my Christmas shame. So my number at the beginning is wrong. I apologize. I have got a lot of books for Christmas. This is an editing nightmare. No, you don't have to change it. All right, so I got 11 new books. I've already read one, though, so. Okay, so that's 10. So that's 10. Count it. I got Interior Chinatown. You're welcome. Which won the National Book Award this year. I got The Midnight Library, which is another big 2020 book. I got Bring Up the Bodies, which is the second in Wolf Hall. Pizza Girl. Mm. which Toby also wants to read. And neither of us really know why, except the title's good. And the cover is dope as heck. 
Yeah, it's really cool. I got Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, The Only Good Indians, Dear Child, We Ride Upon Sticks, and The House in the Cerulean Sea, which were all top picks for 2020. And then I got I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are by Rachel Bloom for Icelandic Book Flood that I celebrated with my husband, Dylan. Oh, I forgot how to say. Eula Buka Flood. Yeah. Something like that. Nope, that's not Icelandic. Nope. We actually do have listeners in both Denmark and Iceland, so watch your mouth, Toby. I want to give them all a big hug. <laughs> so, so plus 10 to my list, so my um, to-read list is now at 146. Let's not worry about it. I'm actually uh, I'm not worried about it. Well, if I read 75, yeah, you know, you're doing good. That. That's solid. There you go. And to any of our Icelandic listeners, let me say that we are very friðjæfu. To any Icelandic listeners, we are very... There you go. Okay, so spoiler alert. On the podcast, I read Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. That's me gasping because it's not enough air. Stupid. Uh, And before we get into the reviews and everything, I just have a question to ask for you guys. So the copy I got was from a library book sale. It's clearly well-loved. Somebody has put check marks next to quotes they like in the beginning they've put down topics of conversation as if for a book club Mm. and i was just wondering like what do you guys feel about marginalia does it do you like reading books with it does it distract you what do you feel well i don't know i I, it's just for me the um it never quite tastes the same so i prefer butternalia toby (laughs) toby (laughs) they say you you can't child they don't need to make these jokes (laughs) they say you can't believe it's not butternalia but i can believe it's not butternalia (laughs) So, Bailey, I have some thoughts. No, I I like it in theory, especially if it's just like a little thought. However, my main experience with it was in college when I would buy most of my books used for like English literature courses. And the people who I got their used copies for tended to go strong and wrong with their marginalia. (laughs) Um, So they would like (laughs) circle something and write irony that was not irony Mm -hmm. or like man versus nature when it's just the cover page or something. I don't know. (laughs) Very silly. Um, yeah, no, realistically, um, I don't like it because usually the most of it that I've encountered is like underlining and it changes the way that I read the sentence. And usually they underline things where I'm just I'm like, why? Mm-hmm. You know, it is distracting. Yeah. Let's get into it then. Check it out. Check it. Check it. Andrew, you had a book to read. Check it. You had a book to read <laughs> this week uh, from your shelf. What book did you read? I read Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. No, no, no. I, yeah, I truly have no, I, have no idea what, because I don't even know what it's about. Girl power. Well, girl of, another, girl um, another. I'm glad you had that moment of sort of not knowing what to say, because that's sort of mi- uh, mirrored in my review, because while I really liked this book and we'll get into it, it's hard to describe because it's kind of just like a recording of things that have happened, like a recording of people's lives that then comes together as like kind of a tapestry. So it's it, it, it's hard to point to like, this is the plot of this book. So here's my little, it's not a log line. It's sort of a teaser. It's a amuse-bouche um, for mm. the review. Spanning decades and countries, Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other tells the stories of women and non-binary characters to create a rich and complex image of modern England. Stemming from a single event and rippling outward, each story deepens those that came before and sheds a different light on what you thought you knew. To give you like a tiny bit of context, because I don't even think that context would really help, but basically you start this book and you're following a character who's going to her opening play at the National Theatre in London. The next chapter, you follow her daughter. The chapter after that, you follow her friend. 
Hmm. That's a section of three. There's a section of three after that that is another mother, daughter, ancillary character, mother, daughter, ancillary character in another section. And there are four sections of that and then two like bring it together chapters. Okay. That's the like structure of the book. It sounds like um, Visit from the Goon Squad. Did you ever read that? Oh, yeah. I did read that. And it's Visit from a Goon Squad, but I preferred the way this one was laid out. What this book does is it more closely goes with familial or chosen family relationships and just takes a pot of people. Hmm. And it'll tell their story from contemporary or from way in the past. We have stories from like the turn of the century and also stories from, you know, 2021 effectively. It's less moving forward than Visit from the Goon Squad to me and more like a tapestry or like just sort of presenting you with the facts of these people's lives and then making you make the story, which I sort of preferred. I kind of, I grew a little tired of the format of Goon Squad. Sorry, I'm still up on that mountain. Not enough air. <laughs> um, so yeah, so th- all that said, it's, it's sort of hard to give you more about the plot, but that's what you need to know. A few things I, I, I really loved about the book and, and the way it worked is its pacing is, is number one. It's a really unique style, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to describe this in an audio medium, but I'll try. Every sentence is followed by a line break. So you even though some sentences are paragraph length, they're all connected with dashes or commas versus um, hmm. actually being you know, hard stop periods. I don't know that there's a period in the entire book. And actually what I wanted to say about that is I thought it was really effective because what it takes away is the limit of our expectations of a sentence because you really quickly stop expecting full sentences and you she is able to create a sort of sonic world on the page that is the exact pace that she wants and you feel like you're in the hand of sort of a master in that way. Sounds cool. So to give you a taste of that i'm going to give you two quotes and what i'll do while i read this actually is i will try to take like a small pause wherever the line break is because it's not necessarily where you would think it is you can just yell line break when there is one yeah that's what i'll do this is a good call (laughs) um um, this is on page 276 penelope's parents were dull and dispassionate automatons crawling towards their deaths she wrote in her diary at the age of 14 it was unfortunate because she herself was brimming with vivacity and racing towards a marvelous life that stretched gloriously ahead of her. She also wrote in her diary. (laughs) And so that's an example of how she uses the pacing in a way that I found really effective. Here's just another example of it real quick. And this is the last quote I'll read, but when she's dealing with sort of a heavier subject matter, this is on page 258. We courted over the forthcoming winter months when I was adjusting to the weather and culture. I was grateful to have him to support and steer me, even though he wasn't particularly good-looking or with a dashing personality, both attributes I'd imagined for a husband before I was mature enough to accept that it was easier to dream than it was to make the dream come true. Hmm. So is it written in verse or it's just there's commas separating it? In the experience of reading it, I think I may be overstating the line breaks in a way because it flows like a normal novel. And I think maybe that's just another point in her column in that she's doing a very bold format thing, but that I didn't really notice it. Well, I, I mean, um, from the way that you delivered the comedic one, I thought that was like the, it added to the comedy quite a lot to me. Yeah. But maybe did. that's just your hilarious delivery. <laughs> so, yeah, that's something I really liked. Um, another thing in the pro column, each section feels really complete because... Each, you feel like you get this whole story of each person and you're really satisfied by that. But then each subsequent section has the power to completely like alter your perception of the characters that you thought you knew. It's really strong in particular with the mother-daughter relationships, which there are several in the book. Like you'll get this character who thinks the main character and then the next chapter you get her daughter and she's like, my mom's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> After you've like fallen in love with this previous character, um, which is just a great dynamic that the format really helps. Um, and, I, and I really enjoyed. 
I sort of touched on this, but something that's kind of freeing about this book is that there is no dramatic linear plot. There's not a lot of tension. There's not a lot of like, will this end up happening? Will the, the world be saved? But you feel like you're getting this complete and satisfying story, which is something I feel like a lot of authors try to do and do not do. Mm. And uh, Evaristo has done it here. I mean, I loved almost all the characters, which is a, a pretty good hit rate for when for books like this. Sometimes you just when you swap narrators a lot, there are some you just really hate. There are some that are more fun than others, but I didn't hate any of them. I mean, I hated some of the things they expressed, but not necessarily like being with them, mm-hmm. um, which goes into my cons, which are, are my orcs, sorry, which are, are, are very small. I mean, the only thing I can sort of say about the book that left me a little bit, not even cold, but just like could have grabbed me a little more is I didn't leave the book and like turn that last page and feel enraptured or like completely wowed by how it all came together. Mm. Um, I was satisfied and I really, I mean, as you can tell from my review, I loved the book, but like the, the ending didn't necessarily surprise me. The way things came together, I sort of saw coming. But ultimately, it came together in a in a great way, and the fact that I sort of saw it coming isn't really a critique. Yeah, it sounds like it. it sounds like that wasn't really her goal to be like and surprise, like this is how it came together. Yeah, I, I think I mean it's not like the book is called Girl, Woman, Other Surprise. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, so yeah, I mean we were gonna give said, her we were gonna give her the man Booker, but uh, the title, <laughs> girl, woman, other surprise. I just wasn't surprised. <laughs> um, so this won't be surprising. I gave the book five stars. I'm gonna keep it on my shelf. We're starting 2021 off with a real good book in the in the five star column. Sweet. Um, hope they're all this good. Sure they won't be. Yeah. But happy to have read <laughs> this book. This sounds great, Toby. Do you have any facts on Bernadine Evaristo? Oh, boy, do I. Are you guys ready to feel insecure and inferior? Bernadine and Barista. I don't, I don't put my own like self-worth based on what other Shut people Shut up, Andrew. Done. I've climbed Mount Everest, <laughs> so. Uh, Bernadine Evaristo, O-B-E-F-R-S-L-F-R-S-A-F-E-A. What's that? I don't know what any of those are besides O-B-E. I know what O-B-E is, yeah. but none of the others. <laughs> I, they're just on there, and oh. they seem really impressive. Order of the British Empire? Yes. yes. Uh, she was born in 1959. She's a British author. Her book, Girl, Woman, Other, won the Booker Prize in 2019, making her the first black woman and the first black British person to win it. Take that, Zadie Smith. <laughs> Um, wasn't it shared? I just remember seeing that somewhere. Yeah, it, it was shared with Margaret Atwood's The Testaments, which is... Not awesome because it kind of says, oh, well, we'll give it to a, a black woman, but only if she shares it. Or at has, least that was has what Margaret contra- Atwood already won it, too. Yes. I feel like she, oh man, what's the point then? Yeah, no, exactly. Okay. That's the controversy. Well, um, she became a member of the Order of the British Empire in the Queen's 2009 birthday honors um, and an officer of the Order of the British Empire in the Queen's 2020 birthday honors, uh, both for services to literature. She is a longstanding advocate for the inclusion of writers and artists of color, setting up many many successful projects. She was born in Eltham, southeast London, and, and christened uh, Bernadine Anne Mobolaji Evaristo. She was raised in Woolwich, uh, the fourth of eight children born to her white English mother, who was a school teacher, and her Nigerian father, Julius Taiwo Bayomi Evaristo, uh, known as Danny. And he was born in British Cameroon, raised in Nigeria, and he migrated to Britain in 1949 and became a welder and the first black counselor in the borough of Greenwich for the Labour Party. Um, Everista writes books of fiction and verse fiction that explore the aspects of the African diaspora. She experiments quite a lot with form and narrative perspective, often merging the past with the present, fiction with poetry, and the factual with the speculative. 
So Andrew gave us a review of how she does that in this work. I found another uh, example of that kind of interesting work in her novel Blonde Roots, which was published in 2008. It's a satire that inverts the history of the transatlantic slave trade and replaces it with a universe where Africans enslave Europeans. Blonde Roots won the Orange Youth Panel Award and Big Red Reed Award and was nominated for the International Dublin Literary Award and the Orange Prize and the Arthur C. Clarke Award. A lot of awards. A lot of awards. Oh, she has an awards section on her Wikipedia page that is just, you can just scroll and scroll. Yeah. The rest of this is from an interview with Vanity Fair. The interviewer asks, so why 12 characters? And how did you envision bringing them together in one book? Surprise. Surprise. Uh, Evaristo responds, I wanted to create as many black British female protagonists as I could get away with. I decided that each woman would have her own section, but they are all kind of interdependent. The first chapter I wrote was Carol, the banker, and then her mother, Bummy, appeared in Carol's section, and I thought, okay, Bummy's going to be the next character, and Carol has a school teacher named Shirley, and so Shirley became a character. At that stage, I was starting to think in a more organized way, and I thought, I'm going to have Shirley's mother because she'll be of an earlier Caribbean immigrant generation. And that's how the book was built, with one character leading to another in quite an organic way. I wanted to have a diversity of backgrounds, experiences, and qualities. All of it. Excellent. Nice. That's funny, because in the way the book came out, that's not the order that she ends up putting them in. Yeah. But it's funny to hear that Carol was the first character, because that's definitely when the format really, like, hits. So it makes sense that that was sort of when she figured it out. The interviewer asks... The novel is set in contemporary England. There are very current discussions of Brexit, intersectionality, the Twitter sphere, and more. But the legacy of the 1980s era of black feminism and activist theater looms large. Tell me about your own connection to that time. Everista answers, I was very much a part of 1980s black feminist countercultural community in London. I left drama school in 1982 and, like Emma, formed a theater company, essentially because there was no work available for us. I really wanted to explore that history and bring it to light. Be- because unless we, the people who lived through it, talk about it, I don't think anyone's ever going to write about it. But with the different characters, I wanted to have this range of identities and so on. At some stage, I decided there would also be a rural family who are living in the north of England. Our experience in this country as black people has been very urban because we're not welcome in the countryside. So look Locating this family there felt like a radical thing to do. It was positioning ourselves outside a slightly stereotypical notion of who we are and what we do. Uh, The interviewer asks, and with this book, you're also interested in exploring different ideas of sexuality? Evaristo answers, yes, that's part of it. There are several women on the queer spectrum, and that in itself is subversive, simply because when we are presented in literature, we are presented in a very heteronormative way. Actually, it's quite subversive to have women who identify as lesbians, women who have homosexual experiences but don't necessarily name it, and then to have a non-binary character who considers herself pansexual. Uh, And for the final question, um, the interviewer asks... Emma struggles, actually I actually thought this was a really interesting question. Emma struggles with the idea of joining the mainstream after a long career as an outsider. It's a theme picked up by several other characters as well. Has winning the Booker Prize made this question suddenly more pointed for you too? Um, which I thought was interesting because Evaristo obviously has a huge storied career, but I personally had never heard of her. I think this is maybe her first gigantic book in the US, so... She really is joining the mainstream. Everisto answers, It's interesting. Perhaps there's a little bit of life imitating art. I think it's very much a question of how do you succeed in this society? As black British women, how do you succeed in your career, in your relationships? Do you dare to dream? How do you fulfill your dreams? How long will it take? It took Emma 40 years. It took me 40 years, quite frankly. But what I find fascinating about the Booker is that I've written this book, which some people would call a queer book about black British women, quite radical in terms of its stories and structure, and it's going out there into the world and people are reading it. The prize has given it this stamp of approval. Hmm. Well, I definitely want to read it now. It sounds really good. 
Yeah. Yeah. I want to check out some of her other work too, especially because it seems like she has a deeper backlog than I, than I realized. Yeah, definitely. You know what? Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) So that's Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Five stars. Five stars. Guys, guess what? What, Bailey? What? (laughs) I read a book too. Whoa. The format continues apace. (laughs) You might have thought I wouldn't be able to do it like it was an insurmountable goal, but, you know, I made it happen. How many people died (laughs) during your reading of this book? (laughs) Listen, pretty high percentage. (laughs) Higher than you'd think. All right. So I read Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. Everest, Everest, Everest. This book, uh, I'm sure, I'm not sure, but you've probably heard about it. It came out a few decades ago. That's weird to say, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is following the journalist John Krakauer, who is also an avid mountaineer and outside enthusiast. How would you say that? I mean, I would say outside outside enthusiast. Outside boy, as Andrew said, and I spoke over him. Outside boy. I want to take that one as my own. I said outside boy. Uh, (laughs) An an avid outside boy, John Krakauer, (laughs) as he joins a group of people who are going on a guided ascent of Mount Everest in 1996. Little did he know that this would be one of the deadliest seasons (laughs) on Everest. It'd be especially messed up if he knew it was going to be one of the deadliest. The book started as an article, not to jump on your facts, Toby, sorry, that Krakauer then expanded to a full book. um, And it follows, it starts on top of Everest and then cuts to a few months earlier. Smash cut to. And explains, because really... In a lot of ways, getting to the top is only the beginning. Is this your first crack hour book? No. I read Into the Wild, um, and I used to teach Into the Wild, and okay. I like that book. Stars? I think five. I would say five. Okay. And then, um, I would give it four. Maybe four or five. Yeah. And then Under the Banner of Heaven is also on the to-read list, but I have not read it yet. What I like about right now is I truly can't tell what Bailey thinks about this book. And <laughs> yeah, me too. Me either. <laughs> should, I ask you, should I ask you guys to guess? I'm going to guess three stars. Okay, Andrew. I, I, well, I think you don't like it. I think you do like <laughs> but it. But we'll see. Here's the thing. Bailey is swinging around her LaCroix like she's a like she's a Cersei Lannister watching stuff burn. <laughs> this is a five-star book for me, you guys. Oh! Ah! Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for five minutes from now. <laughs> Let me just explain why I like this book. You might not that think is, I... That is how the podcast works. <laughs> how dare you? Uh, you might not expect me to like this book. I'm not an outside boy, necessarily. Fair enough. Like... Sometimes I like to be outside. I'm not going to be climbing Mount Everest anytime soon. In fact, I find hiking up large mountains to be pretty terrifying. And a lot of this is really terrifying, although not necessarily what you'd think. Like, the cold doesn't really scare me. The heights doesn't scare me. What really scares me, and this reminds me, Toby, Dylan, when we had to go spelunking in Yosemite and I had a panic attack, Mm. the idea that you can't easily just get off. That like, <laughs> even when you get to the very top, you still have to get all the way down to the bottom again. Yeah, that's dangerous roll, all the way. Down. <laughs> you can't just roll down. I want to say that's claustrophobia, but that doesn't seem like the right word because you're out like literally in the elements. But there's something that just feels so, you just feel so trapped. Yeah. I'm stuck there. At the same time, and this may surprise you, I, I think that there is something in each person that thinks... It'd be interesting to climb Mount Everest. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I would never, ever be able to do that. But like, if somebody asked me, do you want to do it? 
I'd be like, I'd have to think about it. Yeah, you're all paid up. Here's the ticket. Yeah. We're gonna, it's going to be in a year from now, so you can train. You can train. You're going to have a guide that literally brings your stuff up, which is parts of part of the theme of the book. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you're like, oh, yeah, I might want to do that. And yet, when you're reading it, how John Krakauer describes it, you're like, this is a nightmare. This is a human nightmare. Well, and it, isn't that like the classic quote about Everest? And I don't remember who said it. Some mountaineer, like, they Mallory. asked him. What's his name? His name's George Mallory. Yeah, they asked him, like, yeah, why, why do you climb it? Because it's there. Because it's, it's, it's such there. a famous quote because everyone kind of understands it. Like, I could do that. Yes. Yeah. I want to do that. Was it Edmund Hillary that said it? No, it was George Mallory, who many people think was could have been the first person to summit. However, he did not return, and they only found his body in 1999. Was it, was it stuck to the top of Everest? <laughs> Dylan, the fact that you are questioning me and looking it up when I just read this book. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm just using my phone for something Patriarchy in action right here. Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay um, were the first people documented to ascend Everest in 1953. Dylan is still Googling it. What? But he still does not believe me. No, no, it's like I said, George Mallory said it. Oh, Dylan got it right. Okay. Okay. <sighs> My ladies, Dylan, listeners. I'm on your side here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, okay. So you can kind of imagine what it would be like because you're like, okay, well, I would be on the top of the world. I can picture what that would be like. Yeah. That this is the way that you get to do it is by reading this book. You're going on your own tour of Everest and that I really loved. Wow. That is a huge um, elk for me. Elk for me? Elf. Well, maybe elk. I don't know. It's a new year. There's certainly not elk on Everest, I don't think. No, but there are yaks. And there's a whole part about how some are yaks and some are yans or something. The female ones are called yans. Uh, I loved the adventure of it. I loved the tension. I loved that I knew that this was not going to go well, both for my knowledge <laughs> of the true facts and I also... Love, I love knowing things are going to go poorly. Well, you're just like... Yeah, it's a sense of like foreboding. Foreboding, exactly. It's like, there's got to be a reason why this book was, you know, written. You haven't heard of that new book about John Krakauer about that trip that went extremely well? And <laughs> <laughs> it's like that time I walked to the grocery store by John Krakauer. It was great. <laughs> so that I all loved. And that, I think... Um, encapsulates John Krakauer for me is that he, if you haven't read him before, I think he makes these outside themes very approachable for people who are not outside boys mm. like me. Um, <laughs> there, it's fun to read, and so that's all great. What that's kind of what I liked and what I expected to like. What I liked and was surprised by surprise. Surprise. Were themes that you may or may not know about, which is the commercialization of Everest, the relationship between the clients and the guides. In some cases, the guides being Sherpas, who are either capital S Sherpa, which is an ethnic group, or Sherpas with a lowercase s, paid guides who are just, you know, climbing enthusiasts who don't have enough money to finance their own climbs, so get people to pay $65,000 and they take them up Everest. Mm -hmm. Um, So I found that to be really interesting and I also thought it was interesting to read from Krakauer's perspective, because although he is not he is not the guide, he is also not a novice. Like he knows enough. He's he's been to high elevations. He's been ice climbing before. He knows enough to wonder is what we're doing right. But he also recognizes the relationship between the guide and himself. And so he doesn't question it. And then later when mistakes are made, he thinks, oh, maybe I should have questioned it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that surprised me. It was interesting. Just the talk of like, 
all of the trash that's been left on the mountain for the past few decades that they've been climbing it, the bodies that are still there because it's so difficult to remove the bodies. It was really surprising and engrossing and I don't know. It just pulled me in and surprised me by how interesting it was. And also the general theme of Krakauer as his guilt or the difficulty of being the survivor and the storyteller. So a lot of people, spoiler alert, die that he knows um, on this ascent. And he's the one that documents it. However, when you are 29,000 feet in the air and running low on oxygen, your memory isn't great. And he hasn't slept for days, et cetera, et cetera. So he he writes about his memory and then later learns that that's not exactly what happened. Wow. And people get angry about that. Um, And so he has a lot of a guilt that comes along with being the one that survives and the one that has to tell the perfect version of the story. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting. So I'll just share one quick quote. This is on page 233, and I think it encapsulates the craziness that you need to get to the top of Everest. Unfortunately, the sort of individual who is programmed to ignore personal distress and keep pushing for the top is frequently programmed to disregard signs of grave and imminent danger as well. This forms the nub of a dilemma that every Everest climber eventually comes up against. In order to succeed, you must be exceedingly driven, but if you're too driven, you're likely to die. Above 26,000 feet, moreover, the line between appropriate zeal and reckless summit fever becomes grievously thin. Thus, the slopes of Everest are littered with corpses. Oh boy. Dun, dun, dun. There's a thing called summit fever, which is when you can see the summit and like you want to keep going, even though when you get there, you're not going to have any energy to get back down. I'm just imagining that scene from Muppets Treasure Island. I've got summit summit fever. (laughs) Um, And this is related. This is the end of the introduction. Krakauer writes, the plain truth is that I knew better, but went to Everest anyway. And in doing so, I was party to the death of good people, which is something that is apt to remain on my conscience for a very long time. So just these themes of knowing it's dangerous and going anyway and how that affects you long after the fact. So for me, I read it really quickly. Five star book. I recommend it, even if, you know, you're not an outside boy. And there's also a segment uh, a few years ago on John Oliver last week tonight when he talked about Everest and how it's even worse now. There's a really famous image of 2019, which was even more deadly than 1996, of just a line of like 100 people queuing up to get to the summit and just how like you're stuck there. And like what happens if there's, yeah, claustrophobia. Exactly. Toby shaking his head in fear. But uh, John Krakauer is into thin air, five stars. Toby, do you have any facts on Mr. Krakauer? Well, yes, I do. He didn't just disappear Ah! into thin air. John Krakauer was born on April 12th, 1954. He's an American writer and mountaineer. Um, He's written many best-selling nonfiction books, Into the Wild, Into Thin Air, Under the Banner of Heaven, and Where Men Win Glory, The Odyssey of Pat Tillman, um, as well as many magazine articles. He was born in Brookline, Massachusetts, uh, as the third of five children of Carol Ann and Louis Joseph Krakauer. His father was Jewish and his mother was a Unitarian of Scandinavian descent. You mean us? He was, nice. raised, he was raised in Corvallis, Oregon from the age of two, uh, and his father introduced him to mountaineering at the age of eight. His father was, quote, relentlessly competitive and ambitious in the extreme, close quotes, and placed extremely high expectations on Krakauer, hoping that his son would attend Harvard Medical School and become a doctor. 
No pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, competed in tennis at Corvallis High School and graduated in 1972. Uh, he went on to study at Hampshire College, Massachusetts, um, and he got his degree in environmental studies. In 1977, he met former climber Linda Miriam Moore, and they married in 1980. After graduating from college, Krakauer spent five weeks alone in the wilderness of the Stikine ice cap region of Alaska. Same. <laughs> And climbed a new route on the Devil's Thumb. You do that one, Andrew? I mean, who's to say? I did so many routes. Who's to know which ones were new and which ones weren't? (laughs) Um, He described the experience in Iger Dreams and in Into the Wild. Uh, In 1992, he made his way to Cerro Torre in the Andes region of Patagonia, a sheer granite peak considered to be one of the most difficult technical climbs in the world. This is all before um, the events of Into the Air. So as Billy mentioned, extremely experienced climber. So in 1996, uh, he went through the events of Into Thin Air. Um, it really, he was already kind of famous as a writer because Into the Wild was very successful, but Into Thin Air really cap- catapulted him to an even higher peak. Uh, peak. Thank you. I was going to say level of fame. What a wasted opportunity that would have been. <laughs> so this is uh, from an article uh, on The Guardian website uh, about the Everest movie that came out starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Did you guys know about this movie? Yeah. No, but as knew I knew about it, didn't watch it. As I was reading it, I was like, "This would be a good movie." Um, well, he hates it. Uh oh. He said, and I love this quote: "Quote, it's total bull. Anyone who goes to that movie and wants a fact-based account should read Into Thin Air." <laughs> <laughs> the book, my <laughs> So, Krakauer uh, is an incredibly interesting person. Bailey mentioned a lot about what my research was about his reaction to the um, to the events, but I will just say I have an interesting New York Times article here that was published just after Krakauer returned from the actual trip that he based the book on. Mm-hmm. So this is far before the book, right after he published the outside article, right? And he's kind of doing press because even the outside article was famous at the time. So this is just the article. Um, there's some quotes from Krakauer in it. But when Mr. Krakauer arrived back in Seattle, he was greeted by the children of one of the victims, Mr. Hansen. Quote, I sort of ducked it, he said. I didn't really know what to say to them. I still don't. All these little conclusions you're supposed to have just don't fit. Close quote. Mr. Krakauer was asked if he planned to write a book about the disastrous Everest trip. No, he said. He was going to work on his home, become something of the climber carpenter who used to be in Boulder, Colorado, nearly 20 years ago. He will not give up the mountains, though. Quote, there's something about being afraid, about being small, about being enforced humility that draws me to climbing, he said. But right now I need to recover psychologically, he added. I'm enjoying the green, the rain, the city. Close quote. And the writing? Mr. Krakauer said he had no plans to write about what happened on Everest, because with Into the Wild, he had already written that story. Um, this book was written in 1997, which is one year after the trip. So I just thought that was an interesting article where he says definitively not. I would never write about such a terrible experience. And those are my facts about John Krakauer. Well, excellent. Um, definitely recommend this five stars. Andrew, do you have a game for us? Do you have summit fever? (gasps) Do you have some fever? No, I don't. (laughs) That's exactly what someone with summit fever would say, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So I do have a game for you this week, though, despite not having Summit Fever. And it is called England Has Tall Stuff Too. (laughs) And so honoring the mountain featured in uh, Into Thin Air and and the country that's the setting for Girl, Woman, Other, I have created a trivia game about the tallest things in England. The way this is going to work is I have six categories, so you will each answer three of them, Bailey and Toby. Hmm. Um, I will give you three options. One of them is the correct answer. The other two are either made up or just incorrect. And you will tell me which one is the tallest 
Ooh. thing in that category. Let's do it. Sounds dope. So I'm going to say random number generator. Toby, you get to go first. Great. Hope it's not out of reach for you. Oh. And I picked you to go first because you have lived in London. So you might have special knowledge of oh, no. at least this first question. He's no. also taller than me. It's true. That's also very true. If we're going by height, I would get to go first. And then actually, <laughs> the, Toby, you'd go second. You're taller than Dylan. You're no, I close, think Dylan's right? taller than I'm me, actually. Than okay. It's been, it's, been, it's been an issue ever since high school. We don't like to talk about it. <laughs> fair, fair. So first category is building. I'm looking for the tallest building in the United Kingdom, but here are the three options. I'm using the nicknames of these skyscrapers because the Brits love nicknames for their skyscrapers. The Shard, the Cheese Grater, the Scalpel. All three of these are buildings in London. One of them is the actual tallest. Which one do you think it is? The Shard, the Cheese Grater, the Scalpel. It's got to be Chaboy the Shard. Shard Blade. It's got to be Chaboy the Shard Blade. <laughs> that is correct. It's exactly what you need. It's the Shard. It's the building. Um, yep. All right, Bailey, are you ready? Yes. For yours. I, this one took some looking up, so I don't know if you'll get it, but we'll see. We're now looking for the tallest human in England. Okay. Um, and for this category, it's specifically tallest person from England right now. Oh, okay. Reggie Pipsqueak Waltham, <laughs> Paul Tiny Sturgis, John Joe Baby Braithwaite. I'm going to say Tiny. And that is correct, yes. Bailey. You guys are both one for one. Wow. Paul Tiny Sturgis at seven foot seven wow. is the tallest person I could find on record from England. He I don't think anymore, but uh, he was a member of the Harlem Globetrotters for a little bit. Toby, are you ready? Yes. The next category is mountain. Tallest mountain in the United Kingdom. Okay. Um, here are the three options. I will say, ben, I'm sorry, I will say I knew the shard off the top of my head before you even said the options. I have no idea what the tallest mountain is, so let's hope uh, he delivers it in a way that gives me a clue. Everest. Ben Nevis, Ben Mactui, Ben Wishaw. <laughs> Well, one of those sounds really cute. Like, I don't know. He's like a, a little bear. Yeah. I'm going to go Nevis. And that is correct. <gasps> Both Ben Nevis and Ben McDewey are in the Scottish Highlands. That's why they have the Ben in front of them. Mm. Um, and Ben Nevis is the tallest mountain in the United Kingdom. Bailey, your turn. Next category is Cathedral. Mm. I'm not afraid. For the tallest cathedral. <laughs> this includes all elements of the cathedral, spire, and towers. Okay. I thought you were just going to say all the elements of the cathedral, spire, other elements of cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here they are Westminster Cathedral, St. Paul's Cathedral, Salisbury Cathedral. I mean, I, I, and I know what Westminster is, <clears throat> so I'm going to go with Westminster. All right, well, you're incorrect, Bailey. I Ooh. will say Westminster, St. Paul's is also quite famous. I don't blame you for not knowing Salisbury, but Salisbury is the correct answer. Salisbury steak, though. And that's where they make yeah, the steaks. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but Salisbury Cathedral is the tallest church or cathedral in England. It also has the best surviving copy of the Magna Carta. Cool. Toby leads two to one. It is now up to him to close it out right now. I will still let Bailey answer the last question whether or not she does, mm. whether or not Toby does, but you can win the game right here or right now. But, you know, sometimes getting to the top doesn't mean you still have to get all the way down to the bottom, so you're only halfway there. I feel 10 feet tall. I don't know. Toby might get summit fever. I've seen the end of the quiz. Summit fever. Summit fever, summit yeah. Fever. My eyes are turning into <laughs> pictures of mountains. <laughs> Guys, people die from summit fever. Yeah, no. <laughs> 
Toby, your last category is dog. The tallest kind of dog hails from the United Kingdom, at Bailey least originally. Knows what it is. However, so I've used only uh, United Kingdom-based breeds for this. Okay. Um, but this is also the tallest dog in the world. Hmm. Scottish Deerhound, English Mastiff, Welsh Staghound. Hmm. I'm going to say Staghound. Toby, that is incorrect. Oh, you said it in such a cheerful way. <laughs> I know. I just get cheery thinking about whales. Um, no, the correct answer is Scottish Deerhound. Oh. Hmm. I believe the second tallest or the second largest is the Irish Wolfhound, but I wasn't going to make the mistake of including Ireland in the United Kingdom. All right. Well, I've left it wide open for Bailey. The summit is clear. The summit is clear. Bailey, you can tie it up right here. If you get this incorrect, Toby's the winner. If you get it correct, we do have a tie-breaking question. Okay. The final category is football stadium above sea level. Oh. Vale Park, the Hawthorns, or Boundary Park? Hmm. Well, I don't respect boundaries, so I'm going to say Boundary Park. (laughs) That's not even true. That is... Incorrect. The uh, correct answer is the Hawthorns, home of West Bromwich Albion, who I believe lost today. Congratulations, Toby. You are the winner of yes. England has tall stuff, too. Good job, um, Toby. Thank you. You're a tall boy. Congratulations. I'm, I'm glad we didn't need the tie-breaking question because it would have been insanely easy. Awesome. Well, great <laughs> great, great game, Andrew. Great game, Andrew. I'm that- winning 100% of the games in 2021. Ooh. Calling it now. Bailey will never win a game. Wow. Rude. I'm um, also retiring from games in 2021. <laughs> um, now's the time in the podcast where we get our next books chosen at random by our beloved Dylan. Dylan, it's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Uh, Thank you, dear outside boy Dylan. What's my next book? So, Andrew, it's a good thing we covered Mount Everest and Cold Things because <laughs> we have number 66 Pimp, the story of my life by Iceberg Slim. Dylan, this is on your to read list shelf. I know, I might actually read it. Oh, there you go. Cool. Ho-ho. Well, I'm excited. I got my copy of this book um, from my friend Agnes Barinsky as a Secret Santa gift, who has now just come out with uh, her first book um, called Sasha Masha. So check that out if you want to. Cool. So I'll be reading this book in honor of Agnes. Cool. And Billy. Yes. You have number 72. ba da 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 Name of a rose by Umberto Echo on the plane. Name of the rose by... Umberto Echo. Oh, the name of the rose. Dil- uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Andrew got me this book. And, but I did. It was requested specifically as a birthday gift. Yes. It, I, put, I put it on a list of books I wanted to read. It is my understanding is that it's a um, mystery told from within a monastery. Yeah. Oh. Bailey, you can take the death name of the rose on the plane. Ooh, which monkey is killed? I don't know. I'll find out soon. Probably goes by brother something. All right, awesome. Well, I'm very excited. So next week on the podcast, I'll be reading The Name of the Rose by Umberto Echo, and Toby is reading Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. It's true. Nice. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the To Read List Podcast and on Instagram at the To Read List Podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go on to your podcast rating app of choice and give us five big old stars, stars you would see as brightly as if you were on top of Everest suffering from summit fever. They look especially bright, I hear, when you have a terrible case.
of Summit Fever. Also, um, if you want to help us find more listeners, word of mouth is still our best form of advertising. So if you have a friend who's into books of any kind of variety from, you know, verse novels or harrowing tales of the summoning of Everest, we got them all here, folks. Tell your friends. It would really help us out. (laughs) You mean tell your mother, your daughters, your acquaintances? Tell your girl, woman, other. Surprise! (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. Surprise!